All right, good morning. Welcome to Trailhead, y'all. My name is Steve. I'm the lead pastor. I am uh, very grateful that you have chosen to share part of your Sunday morning with us. We are continuing our sermon series looking at parables in the New Testament um, to kind of help set this up. Uh, I recently read um, Paul Miller's brand new book. Uh, it's called The J-Curve. If you're not familiar with Paul Miller, he's, a, he's an author that I highly recommend. He wrote The Praying Life, Loving Life, and Love Walked Among Us. Um, profound studies. Um, if you're struggling with your prayer life, man, you need to read A Praying Life. Um, these, are, these are really, really helpful books. Um, the J-Curve just came out. I had the opportunity with a small group to sit with Paul um, years ago, and he taught us uh, some of the principles that, that developed into this book. And, um, and it's actually come out in previous sermons. Some of you may be familiar with the, the J-curve. I put it up on the, on the screen. It really just looks like a J. And, and, and the whole point behind it is that uh, we're not just saved by the death and resurrection of Christ. We, we actually grow by entering into that same pattern of being undone and recreated right, of, of dying and rising again, that, that it wasn't just a death and resurrection on our behalf, but we, we grow by actually entering into that process. So I highly recommend the book. That's where I'm going to start. Um, it just came out, and um, I, I recommend you grab it. Uh, if you would like to get a small taste of it, um, the publisher actually sent me uh, a small pile of the first two chapters. It's a sample uh, reader, and uh, I've got like 30 copies out there, and I would highly encourage you, if you're interested at all, please grab one. They're just sitting there. I would love for you to grab it, take a look at it. If it's something you think somebody else might be interested in, grab it and hand it to them. Uh, this is one of those books that um, I, I don't think I can work hard enough to help distribute. I mean, it's that good. Uh, it, will, it will help you grow in your faith. It will help you grow in your experience of grace. And so one of the, here's the thing, Paul's a master at these charts. Um, he loves to create charts that take complex spiritual ideas and simplify them into a simple, memorable image. The J-curve is one of those. One of the others is the boasting and failure chart. The boasting and failure chart for me is really compelling because it's helped me make a lot of sense out of um, certain tensions <coughs> in my life. So very simply, what this looks like is at the bottom, you have the word failure. At the top, you have boasting. All of us um, in the world basically place ourselves somewhere on this line. We're all trying to keep from sinking into failure, and we're all trying to get up the hill to this thing that we can boast in. Now, what it is is going to be unique, right? I don't know what your boast is, right? Your, your boast might be um, having a certain amount of money or, or, or having a certain amount of prestige or having the right job. Um, it might be gaining a certain level of, of spiritual acumen, right? Being theologically respected in a spiritual community. It might be, who knows? I, I don't know what your boast is. But this is the default way we approach life. We, we tend to place ourselves on the line, and it's never as high as we want to be. Um, and, and so we're always striving to climb the hill, to get closer to our boast, to, to become more of what we idealistically want to be or to become or to experience or to have. And we desperately don't want to slide down the line toward failure. Right? We fought hard to gain what ground we have in our areas of boasting. And we desperately, I mean, that's, it feels like death to slide down that line. Right? If, if your thing is your job and your, your title and your promotion and then somehow you run into a demotion, that feels like death. If your thing is acceptance by people and all of a sudden somebody all of a sudden stops returning your calls and texts and rejects you, that 
feels like death. If your thing is, is having enough money and all of a sudden the stock market turns and your 401k gets hammered or your savings, or your, are you following me? Nobody wants to slide down that line, right? And here's the funny thing is we all kind of have a sense of who's ahead of us on the line. And, and let's be honest, we're a little envious, a little jealous, and we're all pretty keenly aware of who's behind us on that line. And we feel a little bit of pride, a little bit of superiority, because if they worked as hard as we did or did what we did, or man, they, they could be up here too. It's their fault, right? The failure boasting chart. We all know where we are, and we're constantly trying to leverage opportunities, um, skills, talents, relationships to move higher up the line and desperately trying to keep from sliding down. Now, here's, here's where we're going with, the, with, our, with our parable today. Um, while this is the default mode of the human heart, right, this is the embodiment of what we would call worldliness. Worldliness is, is our attempt to do life without God, to get what only God gives in ways that God doesn't give it, right? Because we are uh, broken in our relationship with God, we try to get the fullness of life apart from the God who gives it. And so what we've done is we've, we've replaced the glory of God with our boasting and we're trying to achieve it. And, and in these parables, God is, or Jesus is going to call us to an entirely new way of seeing ourselves, an entirely new way of valuing. We will either see ourselves through our boast or we will see ourselves through his grace. Those things are not compatible. All right, so our, our parables. Um, you'll notice, those of you who have been around for a couple weeks, that two weeks ago I actually preached out of the same passage. I preached the parable at the end, right? The, the parable that is often called the prodigal son. It's not well named um, because there's actually three characters in the parable. There's the younger son who's often called the prodigal. Prodigal doesn't mean wandering. Prodigal means wasteful. That's what that word means. And, and he's the son who asks his father for his inheritance. He's like, basically, I would like you to die before you die and just give me your inheritance because that's really all I want. And the father does it, and he goes and he lives his, he, he spends the money in wasteful living, in prodigal living. He's wasteful, right? But there are two other characters in the story. There's the, the father who's also pretty prodigal, right? He's wasteful with his affection and his resources. He gives the son what he asks for, even though it's a dishonorable request. Um, and later he's wasteful with his acceptance. He's just generous, lavishly generous um, with his acceptance. And, and then there's the older brother, the one who faithfully serves, the one who over the course of this entire story is out in the field working, doing what he's supposed to be doing, right? Getting up in the morning and, and bearing the weight of responsibility and doing what a guy's supposed to do, working hard, being responsible, showing up on time, um, putting in the sweat so that you can get the reward, right? And, and, and at the end of the story, we find that uh, when he hears that his younger brat of a brother who went and defiled himself with wild carousing, came home covered in the muck of the pig field, and the father embraced him and gave him a huge party. He was offended. He's like, I'm, I'm not going to that dude's party. Are you kidding me? I mean, what a joke. That guy did nothing to deserve a party. That guy did nothing to earn favor. That guy did nothing. And so he has left he stays out in the field, even though his father goes out to him and invites him as well. It's a profound and powerful parable. It's, a, it's an incredible story. But this week, what I want to do is I want to go back and take a look at the first two parables in this chapter, right? Because we have the parable of the lost sheep, and we have the parable of the lost coin, and then we have the parable of the lost son. 
And those three parables tell a single story. And so what I want to do is I want to see how these three parables actually work together, right? So again, let's remind ourselves who Jesus is speaking to. Chapter 15, verses 1 and 2. Now the tax collectors and sinners were drawing near to him to listen, to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying this man receives sinners and eats with them. He has a mixed audience, right? Jesus, who is a rabbi, who is well-respected in the Jewish community, somebody who is, is teaching and, and people are coming to hear him. That person carries a lot of, of weight in that culture. People want to draw near to him. People want to hear him. People want to be near him because in that culture, he's valued, right? He's the kind of guy that you want to, you know, when he gets his picture taken, you want to be in the background, right? And, and then when it gets published, you're like, look, there I am. You blow it up. See, that's him and that's me in the background. That makes me more important. That makes me significant. Look, there was this really important person, and there I am in the back. You want to get near to somebody like that because their glory rubs off on you. Boasting pride, boasting failure, right? We, we have a tendency to draw toward those that we think are going to pull us farther up the line. The problem was Jesus wasn't hanging out with the, the Pharisees and the scribes. The Pharisees and the scribes were highly educated, super diligent, took super care to, to, to make sure their moral lives were in line. They were doing the right things. They were highly religious, and, and they were well-respected, and, and, and they had gone to the best schools, right? And yet, he invites near not just them, but the tax collectors and sinners. The tax collectors were Jewish people who started working for the Roman government, and they collected taxes from their Jewish um, brothers and sisters for the purpose of paying Rome, and, and, and whatever they collected on top of whatever Rome took was their income. So they were seen as, as grafters. They were seen as, I mean, they were just despicable. The, the, the Jewish people despised the tax collectors because they were the lowest of the low. They were working for the, for the Roman government and bringing that corruption into the Jewish culture, right? And then the sinners, that's just a, a, a junk drawer term to describe anybody who's, who's just not morally measuring up. The Jewish people, man, they lived by their law and, and Everything from what they ate to what they wore to how they went through ceremonial cleansings to how they went through their day, it was all governed by the law. And sinners was this category for people who transgressed those laws, who stepped outside of those lines, who didn't live according to the rules and do the things that were expected of them to earn their way in society. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled because they were drawing near to Jesus as a, as a teacher to have to, to move up the boasting line, and yet he's bringing in sinners and tax collectors, which pulls them down, right? And so that's the audience, this mixed audience, and so he tells these stories. Let's take a look, first of all, at the story of the shepherd, starting in verse 3 through verse 7, and, and so he told them this parable, right, this mixed audience. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he's lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it. And then when he's found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no, who need no repentance. Beautiful story. Right? A lot of uh, kind of kitschy Christian art out there, Pick, you know, the, the, the kind of the, the big strong dude carrying the lamb, and, and we all love that, right? That, that image of, of big strong Jesus 
carrying the little weak lamb, right? And, and we picture this story, man, this shepherd who loves his sheep so much that he would not rest until he brought this little sheep home, right? So much so that he leaves the 99 sheep in the open country and goes trekking into the wilderness looking for this little lost lamb. And when he finds him, he's so weak, he can't even walk. So he picks him up and puts him over his shoulders and, and, and carries him home, right? And, and, and then he calls the whole neighborhood together. He's like, look, the lamb that was lost, the sheep that wandered, it's been found. Let's celebrate. And we picture this Disney-like scene where everyone's dancing in the public sphere, right? And the, and, and the birds come and settle on your shoulders, and the lamb is blissfully bawling, and, and, and the Gaston-looking Jesus is going around high-fiving everyone, you know, because it's this great victorious moment. All right, we picture it like that because we're not shepherds, and we have no idea what to do with sheep. Um, when this guy gets back and he calls his neighbors together, and he's like, hey, y'all, look, the lamb that wandered. I've got him. I found him. They're like, dude, you interrupted my work for this? You, what? You called us over here for this? We were working, man. Seriously, what? And by the way, where's the rest of your flock? You left this morning with 100, and you're coming back with one, and you're throwing a party. Where'd they go? You left them in the open country with no one to protect them, nobody looking out for them, nobody guided. What? What? And you want to throw a party? It's ridiculous. And by the way, the one, man, he's so freaking weak, he can't even walk. He's not even good for eating. Your value system's way off, buddy. There's something wrong in your head. When Jesus said, what man among you wouldn't leave the 99 to go find the one? They're all like, me? Me? No, I'm not. No! What sane person would risk 99% of his flock to save 1%? Nah. They were like, nah, 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 nah. I wouldn't do that. That's stupid. That is just stupid. What about the parable of the lost coin? Let's go there. Let's take a look at verses 8 through 10. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, doesn't light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she's found it, she calls together her friends and her neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. All right, this story maybe makes a little more sense to us, right? It's money. Right? We can relate to money a little bit more than we can relate to sheep. And, and this isn't one one-hundredth of a flock. It's one-tenth of, of her coin collection. That's, that's kind of important, right? It's one-tenth of her, of her wealth. And so she lights a lamp, and, and she turns her house upside down, right? She, she, she labors all day to find a coin, and, and then she finds it. It's there. The coin. 
So she calls all of her neighbors together. And she's like, the coin! It was lost, but now it's been found. It was gone, but look, I've got it. Celebrate with me. And all of her friends are like, what? All right, the coin that we're speaking of here is worth about a day laborer's day wage. So it's not an insignificant sum. It's worth quite a bit. But if you spend a day laboring to find a coin that's worth a day's labor and you don't earn another coin, how is that worth celebrating? People are like, your value system is whacked out. This is not worth a party. And by the way, you pulled us away from all the important things we were doing. They're like, that's stupid. So when Jesus is like, who wouldn't be like this woman? They're all like, me again. I would not be like this woman. Right? I'd go to work. Maybe the coin turns up. If so, bonus. And I'm sure not going to go around telling everybody how dumb I was to lose it in the first place. That leads us to the final and, and most famous parable, which was the parable of the lost son that we looked at two weeks ago. A son who covered himself in dishonor. Who dishonored his father by basically saying, I wish you were dead, so give me the money. Which in that culture, man, we're like, ah, disrespecting parents, no big deal. In Eastern cultures, that's a big deal. He brought disrepute not only on his name, but on the entire family name. And what's crazy is the father didn't rebuke him and kick him out of the house. He gave him what he asked for. He actually took the dishonor on himself. And then he goes out and he wastes the, the money in, in partying. And then when a famine hits the land, he's so hungry, he ends up on a pigsty feeding pigs. So hungry, he wants to eat what the pigs are eating. So he gets up after that beautiful, that beautiful verse says he came to himself. He had a moment where, where in the midst of his, his craziness, he, he saw himself accurately. And probably for the first time in his life, he saw his father accurately. Not as a, a block to what he really wanted, not as a means to an end, but as a gracious father. And he realizes, man, the servants on my father's farm are treated better. I will get up and I will throw myself on his mercy. I will go present my need to a gracious father and ask for grace. So he did. He heads home. The father sees him coming from a distance and runs to him, which was dishonorable again for a Jewish man. They didn't run anywhere. He embraces him covered in the pig slop. The guy didn't have a shower. Right? So the defilement, pig slop, was, was ceremonially unclean. It wasn't just filthy like, man, that stinks. But it was, man, the father just made himself ceremonially unclean. The Jews didn't do that. And then he's like, bring my son a robe. Cover him with dignity. Bring my son a ring. Once again, invest him the, with, with power so that, he can, so that he can exercise proper authority in this dominion. Right? Welcomes him home. And the son gets a welcome more grand than he could have ever hoped. The father then throws him a party. Doesn't just welcome him, throws him a party. 
And then Jesus is like, hey, y'all, who wouldn't welcome their son home like this? And they were all like, me. That son dishonored himself. That son covered himself in defilement. That son made rebellious and reckless choices. That son dragged our family name through the mud. That son. most cases, that son would now be dead to the family. That's rich in Eastern traditions. When someone defiles their name so richly, the family actually cuts them off so that they don't get drugged down the boasting failure chart into that person's failure. They, that person is now dead to me. And if the son weren't dead, there would at least be a requirement that he earn his way back in. Why don't you show up and do some work? Why don't you actually be responsible? Why don't you actually earn a little bit of the merit you're asking for? You show up and do good, then maybe you'll earn some favor. But to just cover him in a robe? To give him the ring of authority over the farm? The Pharisees were like, you know what, we, that older brother makes much more sense to us. We're not going to that party. That party makes no sense to us. You're celebrating what shouldn't be celebrated. You, by going to that party, we're actually being covered in the foolishness of your behavior. We're being brought down the chart. No. We'd rather be keep standing out here in our field of pride, tilling the soil of our self-righteousness. We will earn our way. We will establish our own standing. We will earn the respect that is due us. And you're not giving to us what we've earned. You're not giving to us what we've claimed. We've worked hard. We've earned much. We are this high on the chart. And you're making no distinction between us and others who aren't. All three parables, all three parables follow the same pattern. Someone loses something, a sheep, a, a coin, a son. All three of them, based on cultural values, shouldn't be valued. A weak and worthless wayward sheep in the face of 99. Nah, you don't risk the 99 for the one. A day's wage? One coin? Nah, you don't give up a day to go search for... Nah. A son who's covered himself in the defilement of rebellion and in fact comes home actually covered in the defilement of pigs? Nah. Three things that shouldn't be important, that shouldn't have value, that shouldn't lead to the radical action that the people in these stories took, nor should they lead to the celebrations that each person held at the end in all three of these things, the lost thing is found, and in all three, the person finding it is so filled with joy. They can't help but hold a celebration, even if the people invited are standing at the edges going, I hold you in contempt. This celebration is an expression of dishonor. 
And in each of these stories, the Pharisees and the scribes would have been standing there confused and confounded and increasingly frustrated, saying, your stories make no sense, Jesus. Your stories make no sense. We do not identify with these people. They are foolish. They are dishonored and they are dishonorable. They've moved down the chart. We don't want to move down the chart. We're not going to join them. We've worked hard to get where we are. We're not going to slide down the hill. They're going the wrong direction. We're not going to celebrate them. We will quietly judge them. Listen, Jesus is telling us something very profound about how we see life, something radically challenging to our pride and radically comforting to our shame. God doesn't see life like this. God God doesn't see us on a hill trying to work. He's not sitting at the top of the hill waiting for us to work our way to Him. He's not sitting up there saying, work a little harder, do a little better, hope you get some traction. That was dumb. You just slid down five feet. Oh, that's better. Keep it going, man. He's not not a cheerleader up there encouraging you in your self-effort, self-salvation projects. It's the wrong paradigm. The things that we celebrate, he doesn't celebrate. The things that we get so puffed up about, he's, he's not impressed. You know what he celebrates? Humility. That's what he celebrates, humility. He celebrates a broken and contrite heart. Somebody who comes to their senses and is no longer drunk on the pride of their own accomplishments, who no longer believes the lies of their own resume. He's impressed with humility. And as a result, he celebrates something very, very different than we celebrate, right? Take a look at verse 7, 10, and 32, just to drive this home. Verse 7, just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who have no need of repentance. Verse 10, just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Verse 32, at the very end, when the father is speaking to the older son, pleading with him to come to the party of grace, he says it was fitting to celebrate and be glad For this, your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and he is found. Jesus is looking at the Pharisees and the scribes. Pharisees and the scribes see three groups there. They see Jesus, the rabbi, who's very high on the chart. They see themselves as very high on the chart. And then there's a third group called the sinners and the tax collectors. Jesus only sees one group. People in need of grace. And he's looking at the Pharisees and he's saying, look, y'all, you're trying to climb a hill because you think I'm at the top of the hill. You think, you think acceptance is at the top of the hill. You think achievement. You think love. You think significance. You think whatever it is you're pursuing is at the top of that hill. I'm telling you, it's not. 
You will spend your days in a futile effort. You are on a treadmill of self-effort. You will work and you will work and you will work and you will get nowhere. You will have all this hope and every time you get to the next stage that you think is going to be so fulfilling, it's going to leave you increasingly disappointed and you will taste greater and greater despair as you realize that the hill you're climbing goes nowhere. I'm not on the hill. I'm at home. You don't get back to God by climbing the hill. You get back to God by going home. You're working so hard to earn back what you've lost. You're working so hard to make yourself important, to earn someone's love, to finally make yourself secure, to finally attain some level of rest that gives your soul pleasure. You're working so hard. As long as you stay on that hill, you're just going to stay exhausted. You keep tilling that field of self-improvement, self-glory, self-pleasure, and you'll keep doing it forever, and you will never receive the crop of joy or freedom or transformation. You'll never get the robe. You'll never get the ring. There's only one way. You have to come home. You have to come home in humility and in brokenness to receive grace. you got to stop showing up and pushing your resume across the table as if I'm impressed because you can earn nothing. You've got to show up in your humility and in your need. You have to show up in the vulnerability of your pain. You have to show up with your desperate longings exposed Trusting that I'm a merciful Father who will meet you in grace. And when you come home, God's not like, make sure you come to the back door because you're covered in filth. I'm going to hose you down before I invite you in. Covered in your filth, man, he, he runs to you. And he embraces you. He pulls you in, man. He takes you home. He's not afraid of you defiling the carpet. Man, He covers you in a robe of righteousness and of glory. He gives you a ring of power so that you can be who you were created to be. And you can do what you desperately know you were created to do. Your humility will be met with grace. Your brokenness will be met with dignity. Your vulnerability will be met with love. Because before you ever take the first step toward home, God's already been running madly towards you. It's only by His grace you've been awakened to your need to begin with. Jesus says, man, a single sinner, a single sinner, these people you defile, these tax collectors, these sinners, a single sinner coming to repentance lights up heaven with celebration. A single sinner coming home to be covered in grace leads to the celebration of angels.
I think sometimes we get a little confused. We're like, man, I got a promotion. All of heaven is celebrating. I got a raise. All of heaven is celebrating. I got the corner office. All of heaven is celebrating. I moved up the chart. All of heaven is celebrating. And God's like, you're not seeing it, man. I don't celebrate your resume. I celebrate your broken need because it's in that place of broken need you find the humility to reach out and receive grace. And it's only in grace that once again we receive love because as long as we're performing, we are not open to love. As long as we are pretending, we are not open to love. As long as we think we've earned it, it's not love. Jesus says this is what's valuable and all of heaven is celebrating. Man, a single sinner is more valuable than 99 self-righteous persons who don't see their need. Not looking for religious people. Not looking for moral people. I'm not looking for people of self-effort and self-improvement, high achievers and impressive. I am not looking for people who are pushing out an image or a resume. See, Jesus is exposing the foolishness of the failure-boasting way we look at life, the way we value ourselves against others and seek to establish our value before God. We're all a glorious ruin. We were created in the image of God, which means we're glorious, but we're all separated from God because of our sin, which means that there's brokenness in the wholeness. And we're desperately trying to rebuild our glory and cover our ruin, and God's like, you can't. That's why you need me. He doesn't invite us to work harder. He invites us to come home, to have our ruin washed away and His glory wrapped around us, given back to us as a gift, as grace, to get off the treadmill of self-effort and once again find rest in His love. Three critical applications that I saw as I kind of meditated on these three parables. First, we need to recognize that Jesus is the first and greatest gift of God's grace. Jesus is the first and greatest gift of God's grace. See, the only way to escape the treadmill of self-improvement and self-effort is through the person and the work of Christ. He lived the life we should have lived. And then he died the death we deserve to die. He died under the weight of our ruin so that he could cover us with his glory. There was a price that had to be paid for our sin, for our cosmic treason, and Jesus paid that price on our behalf. In love, he did the foolish thing. The Holy One who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. There was a price that had to be paid, and he paid it. And as he rose from the dead, having paid the price, he offers us the glory of of his righteousness, of his glory of forgiveness and, and redemption and renewal and recreation. He gives it to us as a gift. As a gift. He won't he won't let us earn it. He gives it to us as a gift, right? So there's some things that this means, right? There are no cosmic scales at the end of life. Where God like put your good works over here and your bad works over here, and it's like see which end, uh, you know, because we're like, yeah, I, you know, I'm pretty much a good person. I'm not Hitler. I don't know why Hitler is always the measure of, right? But isn't he? 
So I was like, you can put Hitler over here, and then there's me. I didn't commit genocide. I, I'm not even, I'm just mildly racist, you know? Nothing compared, right? That's not the way it works. That's not the way it works. If that were the way it works, we'd all be hopeless. Jesus didn't see good people and bad people. He saw broken people covered in the ruin of their shame, desperately in need of grace. That's what he saw. There is no best works, good works. Listen, even our best works are polluted by sinful, selfish motives. I don't know if you know that, but good works done for wrong reasons are not good works. That's why the prophet Isaiah said, our good works cover us like filthy rags. We think they're splendorous and glorious. They're, they're not, because if we do a good work for a motive that somehow moves us up the boasting scale, it's no longer a good work. There's none who does good, no, not one. That's what the psalmist said. Paul repeated it in Romans chapter 3, there's none that does good. No, not one. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Jesus is God's ordained salvation project to free us from our addiction to our self-salvation projects. God gave us the gift of salvation to free us from our need to fix ourselves. To free us once again to be loved by God instead of trying to earn that love. To receive it as a gift because that's the only way it can be received. Y'all, this is the scandal of grace. What, what this means is that you might see Hitler in heaven. The person you always put on the other end of the scale. And there are some people that you might think are really, really good people. You won't. There's only one measure for coming home. It's coming home in humility to receive the grace that invites you back in. There's nobody who earns their way back through that door. It doesn't happen. It's not for those who have everything figured out. It's not for those who have lived moral lives. It's not for those who have fixed themselves through religious self-effort, who have their theology studied and all perfectly arranged. Who, who, who. It's for those who show up in their desperate need. Saying, you're a merciful father and I need grace. I have nothing to offer. I think you love me. And I desperately need that love. So I throw myself on your grace. There is no expression of humility that is not met with grace. And there is no establishment of pride that is not resisted by his justice. God gives grace to the humble, but he resists the proud. Secondly, I can't earn what will only be given. Man, I'm covered in grace. Um, the most important thing I can know about myself as a follower of Christ <laughs> is that I'm loved by God. Like, that's the most important thing I can know about myself. Moment by moment, every single day, the most important thing I need to deeply know about myself is that I'm already accepted and loved. Because of the work of Christ, I'm already in the inner circle. 
I'm already at the family table. I've already been given the robe and the ring. I am loved. And the one that God loves is invited near. Not because I've fixed myself, not because I've performed, not because I've improved, not because I've earned it or merited it, but because by his grace I have been brought near. It is grace. It is all grace. Sadly, many teachers and, and many churches distort this, and, and, and they teach it like this. What they basically say is, man, you need to believe in Jesus to go to heaven, and then you need to get down to the hard work of growing in obedience. Believe in Jesus to go to heaven, and then get down to the hard work of fixing yourself so that you can be worthy of the salvation you've been given. And God is waiting for you to fix yourself. He accepted you in Christ, but now He's waiting for you to fix yourself before he'll fully accept you and love you. And when you don't perform, he doesn't love you as much. When you mess up, man, you're on the outside. You've slid down the failure chart. We need to get down to the hard work of earning. Performing. See, the lies that this embeds in our soul are deadly and toxic. The lie that says, I am more loved when I am more successful. I am more valuable when I perform. I'm more spiritual when I don't need grace as much. It's utter foolishness. And it's a lie. The Christian life, man begins with grace, it grows in grace, and it ends in grace. It has nothing to do with what we do for God. It has to do everything with what He's done for us. He initiates. We respond. Now, before some of you pick up stones, I'm not saying we don't need to grow in our Christian lives. We do. God's intent, He loves us as we are, but He loves us too much to leave us as we are. He will change us into the image of Christ. He will transform us. He's not going to leave us enslaved and and covered with the filth of, of of our ungodliness and our worldliness. He wants to free us into the glorious freedom of being who we were created to be. And that requires hard work on our part. It requires us to, to, as, as Paul told Timothy, labor diligently at godliness. Or as it says in the book of Hebrews, work diligently to enter into that rest, the rest of his salvation. Work diligently. God's not opposed to working. He's opposed to earning. And that's a fundamental and necessary distinction. The Christian life's going to be work, y'all. To grow to be like Christ, man, it's hard work. You know why? Because I don't like change. I'm kind of addicted to my pride. I like seeing life on that boasting chart because sometimes I think I deserve some stuff, right? To, to learn how to reject that completely and just rest in the work of Christ, to learn how to, how to actually be loved, like to truly believe that I'm ridiculously, completely, profoundly loved by God at all times, man, that, that's actually work. I have to like remind myself of that all the time because I, I just don't naturally, it's work, y'all. There are times I have to wrestle with impulses in my soul 
that are self-destructive or others-destructive. And i got to lean into the grace of God to find the strength to grow so that I don't destroy myself or hurt those that I love. It's work. But it's not earning. There is not one moment in that struggle where God is more disappointed or more impressed with me. I do not gain God's approval by getting better at this Christian life thing. I start with the approval of God. I don't work for it. I work from it. It is the love of God that gives me the strength to enter into the battle against my own soul. The fact that I am already deeply and profoundly loved by God gives me the courage. It gives me the strength to find genuine wisdom and to discover genuine change. You guys, all all loving relationships require work, don't they? Friendships require work, don't they? Marriages require work. Parenting requires work, right? Now, imagine you change the work that you do in those relationships to earning. What does that do to the relationships? It absolutely destroys them. If you no longer work to love your friend because you find you want to just love your friend, no, now it's earning. Now it becomes a transaction. I did this for you, you need to do this for me. I performed, now you need to perform. I I did this thing, you didn't. Right? You let that kind of toxicity into your marriage and it will not only shrivel up and die, it will explode in an ugly way. You let that creep into your parenting. And you will raise kids who deeply, deeply resent you. Because they know in their souls they will never be able to be good enough to earn your love. There's work. But the work flows from love. It is fundamentally different than earning. So I need to rest. I need to grow in grace. I need to rest in grace. I need to realize that it's all grace. I start every single day reminding myself that the single most important thing I need to know about myself is that I am right now, in this very moment, fully, completely accepted and loved by God because of the work of Christ on my behalf. There have been moments that I've been in the, in the midst of sin, and I had to remind myself in that very moment, I am not less loved by God. It's the only way I could find courage in my shame to once again run home to be clothed by my father without trying to pretend or perform or to fix myself or clean myself up or earn my way back. It starts with grace. We grow by grace. It's all grace. Thirdly, we can't have any other center for our community than our common need and our common Savior. As people who come together as followers of Christ to create a transformative community of grace where we are growing in the grace that God has given us, the center needs to be our common need and our common Savior, nothing else. The Pharisees had a religious group that had a different center 
They claimed to follow God. They studied the Word of God. They were the moral majority of their day. They were the conservatives of their day. They, they fought for, for integrity with Scripture and protecting right truths and doing the right thing, and they fought against the liberal impulses of the culture. They, they did all the right things, and they created a corrupt community. So corrupt that when God put skin on and actually showed up. He was not only not invited to their club, he was repulsed from it and crucified. Because he didn't claim the same hill. He didn't live by the same rules. He did not live on that boasting failure chart. He didn't affirm their false pride. He didn't authenticate their lying resumes. He did not come along and say, you guys really are the remnant of God and God is lucky to have you on earth. He showed up and said, there is me and there is you and by you I mean everybody on earth and, and everybody on earth is desperately in need of grace. And the only way to come home is to have the humility to admit it. That common need and that common Savior is the anchor to a genuinely transformative spiritual community. We need to fight against the lies that pervade our culture. The lie that says that we are stronger when we group together around a common morality. The lie that says that we are stronger when we group together around a common political cause or social cause. The lie that says we are stronger together when we group together around a, a secondary theological uh, uh, implication or, or doctrine or teaching. Y'all, we are strongest when we are most rooted in our need. And we are strongest together when we are most enamored with our Savior. When we together desperately understand our need for grace and share that need with one another and come to the celebration. Not as observers, but as participants. Not as the moral ones that were invited in to celebrate those good sinners who made a good turn. No, as those that were in desperate need, beggars who have been invited to the table to feast. Man, when we share that, there is no more transformative community on earth. A community that is deeply loved by God, being transformed by that love, and learning to move in that love toward one another and the outside world, that's transformative. They will know you are my disciples, Jesus said, by your love for one another. Not by your doctrine, not by your morality, not by your political convictions. They will know you are my disciples by your love for one another. And if you don't have love for one another, you're not one of his disciples. The Pharisees were not his disciples. That's what invites others in. That's when people who are far from God hear the invitation to come near to God. That's when people who think differently than us don't hear us judging them for having different convictions or different thoughts, but actually hear, holy cow, there's a bunch of people that are undone by the love of God, and I'm invited to be undone by that love too. That sounds attractive. 
That sounds appealing. I want to be loved. Desperately. And I would like to do it with a community that is drinking deeply at that fountain of grace. A community that's come to ourselves, looked up from the defilement of our own self-performance, left it behind to hear the invitation home, to be received in grace, to be clothed in grace, to be transformed by grace and given a bright future in grace. All right, guys, I'm going to close this word of prayer. And uh, I put some reflection questions up on the screen. We have a time of, of quiet reflection where we just let God work on our hearts. And then we'll share communion together in a moment, but that will be introduced in a moment. Let me pray for us. Father, I thank you that you are the good shepherd. That you valued us, the weak, the broken, the sick. That you left the 99 to pursue us. We thank you that you are the woman who would turn the whole house upside down to find and to save the lost coin that no one else would esteem. We thank you that you are the good father who loves ridiculously, who runs toward us before we even take the first step toward him, who, who greets us, doesn't chastise us or, or criticize us or lecture us, but loves us and covers us in the robe of righteousness and gives us the ring of authenticity, the ring of legitimacy, that we are not just outsiders, but we are now sons and daughters invited around the feast, loved. Lord, may we find that kind of radical humility that allows us to leave behind our resumes and our false pride and all the ways we've been trying to prove ourselves or fix ourselves or impress ourselves or earn the favor of others, that we would walk away in humility, owning our deep need, vulnerable in our brokenness, that we might be met with love. Father, I pray if there are any here this morning who haven't trusted in Christ, any who are, I don't know, just peeking over the fence, checking it out, Spirit. Would you invite their hearts near? Not because they've got everything right or because they have to have anything right. Not because we've got everything right, but because you did. And you love them. Give them the gift of humility to come home. You guys, take a few minutes and pray. We'll share communion in a moment.